Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Deborah So podcast. My guest this week is Jennifer Cavani. Jennifer is editor of The College Fix. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and you can find The End of Gender at drdebrasso.com and on Simon & Schuster's website. Thank you so much for all of your encouragement, and especially to those of you who now support the podcast on Patreon after I revealed last episode that both of my sponsors decided to drop the show. To clarify, their decision was not due to numbers or ad performance, but because of my choice of topics. So thank you again. It means a lot to me that you guys believe so much in the work that I'm doing. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. So excited to get to meet you and chat with you. I left academia five years ago, and I have only continued to see how it has spiraled into dystopia since I left. So I feel you and I have much overlap in terms of the things that we talk and write about. I want to get more into those issues, but I want to start by asking you how you initially got interested in talking about what's going on in higher education. So uh, as editor of The College Fix, we're a daily news website focused on higher education, So day in and day out, we're training students how to write about sort of the culture wars that we're seeing on college campuses today, um, curriculum, activism, and, you know, everything from toxic masculinity and feminist issues, gender issues, uh, critical race theory, um, due process, Title IX, really even uh, higher education bubble issues, uh, cancel culture, bias response teams, all those hot button topics that we've been seeing um, in the headlines. A lot of those uh, are initiated by an article, a report that we did over at the College Fix. You know, trying to shine a light. uh, Sunlight is the best disinfectant, so they say. So we want to make sure that the important stories are being told. And um, this from the student newspapers to a lot of the legacy media, uh, the important stories get neglected. We make sure they're not. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I find the most disturbing in terms of the way that woke ideology has gotten into education is that it's hidden in such a very intentional way so that and I think even for parents who send their kids to these really prestigious schools, they have no idea necessarily what their kids are being taught. They just know that they're spending a lot of money for them to be there. My audience knows I really dislike diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. I think opportunities should be granted based on competence, not a person's skin color or sex or any other identity markers. And it's crazy to me that this is considered controversial nowadays. In the field of health and medicine in particular, I do think it's important to be sensitive to say how racism can create health disparities, but I don't think wokeness is the way to go about being concerned or rectifying any issues. From what you've seen, how have DEI preferences played out in medical school? So this is a huge issue that we're seeing right now. And I, I, I appreciate that um, as a, a neuroscience PhD holder that you, you want to make sure that racial disparities are addressed when it comes to healthcare. But what, what we're seeing now is that most medical schools are arguing that health disparities are caused by racism and not lifestyle choices. So what they're doing mm-hmm. is that the pendulum has swung where now we're not talking about, you know, healthy eating, exercise, you know, don't smoke, that sort of thing. Now everything is being shifted and blamed on on racism to the detriment of true, you know, health and, and what we've known for decades. And medical schools have basically welcome this new diversity, equity, inclusion curriculum hook, line, and sinker. 
we see medical schools left and right pledging to embed uh, diversity curriculum and into literally everything they do from faculty hiring to requiring uh, professors and scholars and clinicians to uh, dedicate, um, do some sort of written statement when they're up for promotion or tenure or hiring that they will you know, include DEI in their curriculum. And I, I actually have dozens of schools that I could, I could say are doing the same. There's an organization called Do No Harm, and they calculated that the top 23 of the 25 medical schools across America have now pledged to prioritize diversity, equity, inclusion in their curriculum. And mm. what, I, what I feel is to the detriment of finding a cure for cancer, finding a cure for Alzheimer's, like, and also to the patient's health. Because um, the leader of Do No Harm, Stanley Goldfarb, has argued that actually racism has not been linked to um, you know some of the health problems, and you're doing your patients a disservice by elevating it higher than it should be. What do you think some of the real-world consequences of this are going to be? Because right now, I'm sure people listening are thinking, this is a little bit insane, especially if this is being taught to future doctors. But how is that potentially going to affect someone's actual care? Well, if, if um, a black patient comes into a doctor and they have some sort of heart and lung problems, and this, this particular medical doctor has been trained up under the DEI curriculum, and so they think it's a matter of they're sick because of the stress of microaggressions um, as mm. opposed to maybe diet or exercise or genetics, um, then the, the advice and care that that doctor gives isn't going to solve the problem of, of this black patient's actual health. So I think the real world implications are lives are at stake in a way um, because they, they're blaming everything on racism as opposed to finding um, you know, solutions to these real medical problems that face Americans. Again, uh, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. Um, so I, I feel like we're doing a disservice to our health community, um, to patient care. Uh, by elevating this over, you know, just hard science, hard data, hard facts, and um, allowing um, doctors to to treat the actual causes of a health concern. I had Clay Rutledge on my podcast a few weeks ago. And so he is a former tenured professor who left because he couldn't take it anymore, essentially. And he was saying something similar in that professors, when they're applying for positions, they have to include a statement of why they support diversity. And that's actually being given equal weight in some cases to their academic credentials. So in terms of their publications and their ability to teach well, which I find very worrisome. And especially in the context of caring for people, I don't think it's good to hire people or give people opportunities in terms of their education based on race or sex, etc. I feel it gives this really negative connotation then that they didn't get there based on their ability. They're there because of whatever boxes they ticked. In terms of, say, health equity, this is something newer that I've been hearing about. Have you heard much of this in terms of how this is different from how people have in the past approached care? Well, everything is about equity now, right? And I think you make a really great point about when a patient sees um, a doctor of color, are they going to wonder, you know, did this doctor get in on their merit or did they get it to fill a diversity quota? Because um, what we're seeing in these medical schools is a demand for uh, a certain percentage of, of faculty of color. And so if you're going to meet that demand, excellence is out the window. 
uh, because you're going to choose a candidate based on the color of their skin rather than, you know, their MCATs or whatever. So it's a real concern from just people looking for solid healthcare. And it's unfortunate too. And that's one of the problems with this notion of um, racial quotas and, and equity is that it also does a disservice to doctors of color who you know worked hard and, and earned their way in to be considered that way. And then it could potentially affect our, our medical care when a doctor of color was let in who maybe didn't have the qualifications that some of their peers did, but they were let in based on the color of their skin um, and found a way to sort of you know make their way. Now, I can only imagine when I casually say, make your way through medical school, I'm sure <laughs> it is incredibly difficult. And I don't want to, um, uh, you know, understell, undersell how difficult that is. But we have to wonder um, whether equity, as you said, racial equity is now trumping just American healthcare and standards of care that are being taught in medical schools, um, including one topic that's very important to you, um, gender ideology, which now we're hearing reports that um, some medical school um, clinicians are afraid to, you know, say pregnant women or, you know, talk about yeah. you know, differences in sex genders because, or, you know, sex because uh, they don't want to be hauled off to the bias response team or be accused of being a bigot. So now, you know, they can't even talk about, you know, biological sex differences in medical yeah. school. Um, we, as the college fixed after that report came out, they talked to a bunch of doctors just saying, look, we, we can't even talk about sex differences anymore. So I had one of our student reporters email 83 doctors, you know, pro medical professors across the nation um, who all typically, if you're teaching at a medical school, you, you're a doctor and uh, 80 of them refused to answer whether this is a trend and only three said, you know, no, it's not as bad as you think. So that's what we have. Wow. The intimidation is real. Yes. What would you say to critics? Because I'm going to play devil's advocate for people who are saying these initiatives are good because it helps underrepresented or underserved communities have a fair chance at going to and going into these prestigious programs. Well, at what cost, A, because again, we're talking about our lives and our health. So while this is a nice notion to, you know, let somebody is in who's underqualified because um, of this notion of equity, but the, the cost again is, is healthcare and our lives. And also, again, the, the, the flip side of that is, you know, they, they come with a stigma. People are always going to wonder, you know, were they an affirmative action um, candidate or did they, you know, get there on their qualifications? So it does a disservice to them as well. Plus, there is um, a, a philosophy that um, students who are let into a prestigious program on the basis of the color of their skin, it's called mismatch, meaning they're going to drop out easier. They're not going to finish the degree because they can't keep up with the rigor of like a very, you know, high level program. Um, and that's, that's a term that's been cited by the Supreme Court and many scholars who've, who've studied this phenomenon called mismatch. So I don't really see an upside to this altruistic notion that we should just let people in for the sake of equity when, when literally this is, these are the people who are, we're relying on to save our life. Yeah, quite literally. I want to thank you for your coverage of anti-Asian violence on campus because very few media platforms have been willing to cover this, especially if the perpetrators aren't white. And I've written about this before, how it seems Asians, we're categorized as minorities if it fits a particular narrative, but then we're also categorized as white if it fits a different narrative. 
according to leftists. So I see a, a similar form of discrimination in affirmative action, which, as my audience knows, disproportionately affects Asian and white men. In your mind, what can everyday people do to put an end to affirmative action? Because again, when you try to speak up, people get called racist. Most people are afraid of that label. So what can they do? Well, affirmative action in... Um you know, is, is, is technically in many places against the law, right? I mean, you're supposed to hire on, on the, on, uh, you know, not on the basis of race. And yet in, what we see in higher education is, is so often um, they use the argument of, you know, creating a holistic, a holistic uh, campus and a holistic admissions process in order to basically discriminate against Asian American students who rightfully worked hard and earned that spot. And again, this goes back to what we're seeing our quality of life suffer, academic suffer, sciences suffer, because if we don't have the best and brightest minds um, leading you know, our country, this is a, we're living in a tough global world right now. And we need cutting edge, smart people doing you know, research and science and, and finding cures to what ails us as humanity. Um, the stakes are too high to play these sort of equity games. Um, so what everyday people can do is, you know, demand that the law be followed, that, um, you know, nothing should be done on the basis of race, that it's that a true equality is, is, is based on, you know, the ideals you know, presented by Martin Luther King Jr. Judge me on the content of my character. And um, I also agree, you know, wholeheartedly about your concern about how, uh, violence against Asian Americans is dismissed, especially on campus. We had a, a really big story recently um, from the University of Wisconsin Madison, where um, an Asian PhD student was brutally beaten in the streets of Madison, and um, both the school and the police said it was not racially motivated. <laughs> now, I if the it. if you know if the cases were reversed. Um, and if it was a group of four white boys, you know, beating up, uh, there, you know, there, of course, they would, you know, be quick to blame you know, racism, but white um, supremacy. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, they, they there's, there's inconsistency when it comes to, um, equality and equity <laughs> because mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, whites and Asian Americans are often held to a higher standard and there's reverse discrimination against those groups. And we see that a lot in higher education. What's crazy is even when it is a non-white perpetrator, it is still blamed on white supremacy, so-called white supremacy, because everything is always white people's fault, of course. Absolutely. And it's so hard to follow that logic, too. But yet the mainstream legacy media just, you know, accepts it without question. And you're left scratching your head going, wait, how does that work? Um, but one thing I, I've been keeping a list of things that scholars have blamed on white supremacy, <laughs> Dr. So it is so long. I cannot, nothing has not been blamed on racism and white supremacy. I mean, can traffic. you give us some examples? Okay. So traffic, like traffic sugar, <laughs> the Kardashians, red lights, <laughs> you know, um, pollution, you know, you know, the, the die out of a species of fish. I mean, there's just really wow. nothing that cannot be blamed somehow on racism and white supremacy. And one day I'm going to publish my list just I to hope show. You do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and in a way, it sort of numbs the person to. I mean, I'm almost 50. And when I was, you know, in the 90s, I can recall if you were called a racist, that was 
one of the worst things that could happen to you. It was awful. And you would be very upset and you would, you know, you would try to rectify that situation and clarify it and that sort of thing. But now if everything is racist, then nothing is racist. I mean, and that's why I think so many, you know, Republicans and MAGA Trumpers or whatever, they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. I mean, they don't, it's, it's almost <laughs> like water off the back of a duck now because it's just so ubiquitous that it's lost its, its meaning and it's lost its, its, its punch. Yeah, which I think is dangerous because in instances in which racism does actually legitimately happen, no one takes it seriously. They're not going to listen. They just think that you're crying wolf again. So I think that also has some negative implications in terms of radicalizing people and also making people become desensitized to actual discrimination. Do you think that affirmative action will ever be repealed? Because I know this is going before the Supreme Court in a few months. And my sense is people are not happy about these changes, especially within, say, the Asian American community. They're very not happy about it. But I still question whether there's ever going to be any justice. Right. You know, I was shocked when like the lower federal court tossed out um, the case against Harvard because we had covered extensively some of the internal documents that were obtained um, through this lawsuit. And even in, in Harvard's own admission documents, you know, internal memos and emails and that sort of thing, they admitted that they discriminated um, against Asian students. Um, and they gave mm-hmm. them these weird like ratings and um, it was very you know, pigeonholed and categorized them into these bizarre boxes. Um, the personality re- scores. Yeah, the personality score, just dehumanizing them in these very weird ways. And it was in black and white. And yet again, once again, the judge decided to rule in a politically correct manner and say, because it creates a holistic campus, this reverse discrimination is allowed. And that's essentially what it is, reverse discrimination. Now, the new um, Supreme Court Justice, uh, Katani Brown, she said she's recused herself um, from from the Harvard case because uh, I think she used to teach at Harvard or something like that. So. Yeah, I mean, look, in, in our lifetime, did we ever think that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned? Never. Not in my wildest imagination did I see that coming. So, hey, you know, possibly, um, it, whatever you think Roe v. Wade, good, bad, whatever, nobody thought it was going to get overturned. That's all right. I'm saying. So, um, again, with affirmative action, we may see, we may see it, you know, we can hope. See, yeah, I, I see a victory by, and then you know, if the Supreme Court does rule against it, um, universities still have these holistic loopholes. I mean, look, they'll find a way. They will find a way to make it happen. So I don't want to put too much hope in the Supreme Court ruling because um, they're very uh, uh, clever in the way that they they can frame admissions policies and, and applications to get what they want. Yeah, I really advocate for readers of my work and my audience to make as much noise as they can about whatever it is they're upset about. Because I think with many of these issues, the only reason we've gotten to the place where we are is because people are understandably afraid to speak up. But I mean, this is potentially the future of your children in terms of their career trajectories. And if they're being held back for a completely irrelevant factor, that's something I'm really not (laughs) okay with. But I think it's interesting also this terminology like diversity, inclusion, holistic. It sounds so lovely, but it's really sinister underneath the surface. Absolutely. The, the heart and soul and mind of, of America is at stake. 
um, our freedoms, our liberty, our First Amendment rights, everything that we were founded upon um, can be rolled back under the diversity, equity and inclusion and critical race theory mantras because equity is not equality. They sound alike, but they're not. Um, equity advances um, equity of outcomes. And that's really a form of socialism. Um, mm -hmm. And I think um, most Asian Americans who have seen, you know, what, what happens in, in communist countries where capitalism is squelched, free thinking is squelched, ideas are, uh, you know, aren't allowed to flourish, competition isn't allowed to, well, except in schools and, and good for them, but, you know, competition isn't allowed to flourish in, in communist countries and nothing good comes of it. You know, everything that we, we have today from our advanced medicines to, you know, our, our incredible, you know, cell phones um, to everything that we see around us has come from, you know, ingenuity, creativity, um, capitalism, competition. But universities today are actively squelching, you know, all, all the benefits that we see around us um, in a variety of ways under the DEI, you know, lens. Where do you think these changes are leading us as a society? To socialism, eventually to where a... a small minority of government leaders get to tell us how to live our lives, what to drive, how to heat our houses, what to eat, whether that's crickets or meat, you know, whether we're driving. I live in California. They just banned gas-powered vehicles in yeah. 2035. You know, these, these policies are asinine, but I'm just saying, like, they want to tell you how to live your life, okay? Again, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you can consider important, what you can eat, what you can drive, how you can heat your home. Um, what medical care to get. So, you know, again, it's, it's about control and ultimately equity of outcomes is about socialism. And that's what we see scholars on higher education advocate for because they tell these young people, look, we're not going to have equity or equality until, you know, everybody's got the same. They, they, get, they make the same money. They drive the same cars. They have the same, you know, things that it's not fair that somebody else is richer than you, apparently. Um, or maybe smarter than you or more talented than you. So, you know, we're going to have to equal things out. That's the only way to be fair. Um, and students, a lot of them buy it hook, line and sinker. And then they graduate from college and they you know, vote Democrat. And unfortunately, now, look, whether you're Republican or not, um, you know, both Joe Rogan and, you know, recently on his podcast as well, it's Chris Rufo on your podcast said, look, the bottom line is, if you want to fight these policies, the Republicans are the one doing it. And I'm a Republican. And frankly, I don't like a lot of Republicans, too. And, and for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into. But my point is, is they are the ones, as, as Joe and Chris have said, both, you know, center right guys. Um, and actually, Joe would call himself a liberal. But they're the, the Republicans are the only ones fighting this nonsense, this craziness. Um, so, you know, that's one way that we can you know, fight back. Um, again, you know, school choice as well um, and proactive parenting also is, is key in my opinion. Yeah, it, it scares me because I think for a long time I assumed that as these students graduated, went out into the real world, saw what life is actually like, it would change their perspective and they would come to a little bit more of a sane position. But that's not what is happening. The problem is getting progressively worse. And from the conversations I've had with my colleagues in academia, they sense that there's something different about this particular generation. And then it goes back to parenting to some extent. Do you consider it to be a similar thing? Or why is it, do you think, that these ideas have permeated with this particular cohort of students? So to honestly, to bring it back to higher education, there's that new expression that we all live on campus now. And that yeah. was something that we were saying recently, like we all live on campus now because 
a lot of people agreed with you, Dr. So, that they're like, well, once these kids hit the real world, when they hit the real world, they'll see this isn't how it works. And, you know, they're safe spaces. Um, you know, they don't have safe spaces in the real world and they don't have these ridiculous policies in the real world. But what we're seeing in the last decade is these young people that are graduating from the Ivies and they're graduating from these top level schools and then they're going to Silicon Valley and they're going into corporate America. What we're seeing is the woke takeover of our country um, based on what these young people were taught on college campuses. And so they're taking those ideas of, you know, safe spaces and coddling and you can't, you're not allowed to say that cancel culture, censorship, memory holding, and they're applying them to their work environments. So unfortunately, our hope that these young kids would get a real awakening. In fact, we're getting the awakening because they're setting these <laughs> policies that are silencing us on Twitter and, you know, uh, dethrottling us on the internet, you know, where we can, you know, our, our search results are questionable and all these yeah. other things, you know, um, even we're seeing it in newsrooms too. Um, we're seeing the implications of not taking what was happening on college campus seriously because now it's affecting all, all walks of our daily life. Do you think that there will be a point at which they will come to some sense? Well, I mean, I'm trying to think what people can do to try and talk some sense into I don't think there's generation. Listen, no. So one thing, and again, I'm a Republican. And one thing I've always admired about Democrats, and especially like, you know, far progressive left, they are like, they will never seed ground. They will never give up. They gain ground and then they just, they want more. They take more. They go farther. They go faster. They go harder. I mean, these are, I've heard a term, you know, true believers, but they are, they are dedicated to remolding and reshaping the world and their image and their philosophy and their ideals. And there's no, back in the day, it used to be, and this is on college campuses too. Okay, well, you can have your opinion. I can have mine. Reasonable people can disagree. You know, but I respect, I, I may disagree with you what you say, but I respect your right to say it. That is no longer how uh, the left operates. Uh, now it is scorched earth and they're going to take over every policy. And we've seen this in gender ideology as well until there's no room for debate. There's no room for objections. There's no room um, for disagreement. So, I don't have, I don't mean to sound cynical, but no, I don't have hope that we can come to some sort of understanding and compromise because I don't see the far left willing to compromise. Now, there is a lot of classical liberals who have come around and said this, the pendulum has gone way too far, but that segment of society isn't strong enough to overcome, I mean, what we're seeing today where the policies are so severe and so extreme um, that, uh, there's really, we're digging a hole here. We're digging a deep hole. I think part of the problem is also that embedded in this ideology is that unwillingness to compromise, because I would consider myself in that latter group that you mentioned of old school liberals who I, I would still consider myself to be progressive, even in some ways, but I've always felt it's very important to let people make their own decisions, have a voice, have freedom of expression, allow there to be a variety of opinions circulating and let people engage and, and have a dialogue. And it seems like that's very much missing even when I look at how discourse happens now. It's not about trying to understand the other side or as say someone who's come from a scientific background, 
trying to just get at what the truth is. It's not about truth anymore. It's not about understanding the other side so that you can adjust your opinion accordingly or maybe see that you are correct. I, I think it's important to want to know whether you are in fact right in your opinion as opposed to being right for the sake of being right. So I do think there has been that shift in terms of how people are approaching these issues, which leads, I think, to why there is such a lack of a willingness to hear the other side and also to offer any decency or any um, any common ground. But with regard to the subject of gender, I saw a tweet from a colleague a few weeks ago, and she was talking about her daughter who has started at a new university. She just moved into a co-ed dormitory, and all the bathrooms on her floor were either all male or gender neutral. So there were no female bathrooms. I'm guessing all the female ones were probably turned into the gender neutral ones. And I just, every time I hear about this, it just drives me up the wall. And my sense is most parents are not okay with this. So why does this keep happening? So I I really wanted to talk to you about what I've seen as the progression from zero to 60 um, in America and on college campuses when it comes to um, the, the gender spectrum thing, because we have been covering it so closely in, so, in the, in the minutiae um, at the College Fix. But so I, I've, I've come up with a sort of a timeline. Of where, how do we get here? Right. Like, how did we get here? And I, I've, I've traced it back to 2015, where that was remember, toxic masculinity was all the mm-hmm. rage. So I got to set the <laughs> stage. But, you know, I mean, some of these these ideas come and go. But back then, boy, toxic masculinity was to blame for everything. And, you know, uh, actually it was to blame for sexual violence, uh, body shaming, hyper-masculized sporting culture, and acts of domestic terrorism. So, so basically, you know, the, the college campuses left and right were having these toxic masculinity events and, and um, you know, shaming, shaming men. Um, at, at one point, colleges were telling uh, young men and women that the worst thing you could say to some, to a guy is be a man. Okay. So mm. that's such a stays in 2015. But then what we had in 2015 is this complete 180 where we're going to accept gender as a spectrum everywhere. So we had the university of California system and that's the largest, uh, research institution, largest, you know, um, system of, of research colleges in the state. Um, and also practically in the nation, they have hundreds of thousands of students, um, they gave students six gender identities on their admissions form. And then we had UCLA biologists at the state, and this is all in 2015, saying that they can show scientifically that gender is a spectrum. Oh, boy. And then also in 2015, we had all these universities embracing the uh, made-up pronouns like Z and Zem and um, or Zer and Per and Ther and all those things, right? They were coming <laughs> up with, you know, spreadsheets of all the different pronoun names and they were rolling out pronoun guides. So the universities had these pronoun guides that they were putting out and most universities were telling students and faculty at this time, never argue with or question a person's gender identity or pronouns. So that was all in 2015. Even um, the women's college here in neither were California called uh, Scripps College. They gave students 10 different choices, Z, Zems, or per all that things. And then what we saw from 2016 until 2018 is a complete and total acceptance of this notion that gender is a spectrum. So what did we see at schools? We saw that administrators allowed the students to use their preferred name and gender on all documents, on their class rosters, on their school IDs and other documents. 
We saw that many campuses did away with their homecoming kings and queens. We saw student governments install tampons in men's bathrooms, a lot at the Ivy League campuses, and that trickled down from there. We Dennis saw, Prager was right. <laughs> yes, yes. We saw um, all female colleges begin to admit biological men, and I actually am unaware of an all female college that's non Christian that doesn't at this point, if they're all female, but they'll still allow biological men who identify as female. All of all of the what? secular uh, women's colleges do that at this point. Um, students and, and faculty, again, this is 2016 on, we're told, avoid terms like policemen, firemen, um, you know, bo- even boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, all that should be avoided. Um, health plans at, at colleges, hundreds of colleges and universities across the nation started to cover cross-sex hormone and transition surgeries. Uh, librarians started wearing gender-preferred pronoun pins to make students feel safe. So basically, 2015 started the ball rolling. 2016 to 2018, all those different things were implemented. And then what did we see in, in 2018 to 2019? We saw the rapid onset gender um where the social contagion, where mm-hmm. all of these young women and many young men too uh, decided that they were, you know, in, you know, the, well, they decided they were the, of the opposite sex and these colleges affirmed it and they had all these programs and you know, let's change your, you know, documents and here's a gender, you know, inclusive bathroom that you can use. And so in 2009, it was so crazy that one of our most read articles of 2019, that it was headline mothers in shock as daughters come home from college with mustaches and breast removes. And one mom told me wow. her, her daughter went from hating white males to wanting to become one, wow. you know? So it, it was so fast and so furious and so incredibly, I mean, the takeover was insane. And that kind of circles back to what I was saying earlier when we, we had just had Oberfell, we just, you know, gay marriage was set in stone. Now it became, this is the new thing. And boy, it mm-hmm. just... It just completely took over and took control in a very, very short amount of time to now where you cannot misgender someone or you could very well be in trouble by your school. Um, they don't even really allow conscious, uh, conscientious objecting anymore. So, you know, and then books like yours, The End of Gender and other books came out questioning what's going on here. But you're up against now you're up against medical, you know, where, you know, even like Brown University's Lisa Mittman, Littman's research on on the social contagion was deleted censored memory hold you, you know we can't have a discussion about this just like we can't have a discussion about covid and all of this is um you know established policy at colleges and universities there's one way of looking at it and no other of the students who are not okay with this i mean how are they doing what are they doing to cope with it because i'm trying to picture what it's like to be a young woman or a young man on campus now dealing with this and if you're not okay with it what can you do well one thing that I think is important to mention is that a lot of of, of the uh, hyper, uh, you know, where the problem is the most severe is some of these really upper level high tier colleges where they have like a fifteen hundred students on campus. It's like it's like the size of a small high school, and everybody's walking on eggshells. And it's very very difficult um, for kids in these you know wealthy top tier universities, the Ivies and, and, you know, some of the lower Ivies uh, because they're so small and there's, and it's such a severe atmosphere that I think they just keep their head down and mm-hmm. their mouth shut. And there's like, I'm just going to get through my four years and be done with it. Um, I think 
students actually have a lot more freedom at these large state schools uh, where the First Amendment rights enshrined in the Constitution must be enforced. And there's strength in numbers where there's just such a, a wide spectrum of students, you know, 25, 30,000 kids on campus that they that they cannot be overwhelmed by the vocal squeaky wheel, you know, yeah. the minority squeaky wheel. So um, I think students who choose sort of these upper tier, tier colleges have a much more time, harder time making their way through than if you can kind of just, you know, get into one of these state schools and, um, you know, be one of the crowd. Uh, but it's a, it's a tough road to plow. And we also see that with um, we've we've interviewed many students over the years who have turned in essays that will appease their professor's ideology, who won't debate with their professor for fear that their grades will be docked or that yeah. they'll become a, a pariah among their peers. Um, again, this is the all or nothing mentality, unfortunately, of, of a, a large segment of the left that really doesn't want to have the debate. And they just want things completely their way or no way. And if you disagree, you need to be silenced or you have to have your mind changed. Um, and there's no there's no room for for everybody to sort of live and let live. What advice would you have for those students who just feel like, OK, I'm going to put my head down, get through the next three, four years just to get the degree done, but who are struggling? Because I hear from so many of them who either are being penalized in the classroom, like you said, or they don't feel like they're really getting very much out of their education, or they're having to deal with these initiatives that are actively discriminating against them. Yeah, what would be your advice in terms of just helping them get through the process? Well, I think it's like case by case basis, because I think some people's personality lend them more to taking on um, this sort of mentality and allowing them to, you know, stand strong and, and debate these ideas in a, um, in a, and I think in a polite way. I mean, for a while there, I think a lot of, uh, there was a lot of frustration with this concept of owning the libs, but it had its time and it had its place. Um, but not all students are going to be that aggressive. So what I what I recommend is based on your personality and what you're willing to do publicly, there are campus mm -hmm. groups, a variety of campus groups that you can join where you'll find camaraderie, where you'll find networking. So you got to seek those out. And, and they're too numerous to name, but I will say that there's all sorts of, of communities within these colleges where you could hopefully find su the support and camaraderie and friendship that'll help you get through these tough times. Can they reach out to the college fix? Like, can people send, um, can they send tips to you guys? Oh, absolutely. Um, we we uh, constantly receive tips. You know, I, I joke, there's never a dull moment on campus. I, I've been <laughs> I've been doing this job since 2012, been editor of the college fix since 2012. And every year I say to myself, it can't get crazier, right? It, it, there's no, <laughs> at some point I'm going to be out of the job because people are going to wise up and they're going to, you know, the pendulums will swing back and things are going to get back to normal. no. It just gets crazier and more absurd every year. So, um, yeah, they can definitely send us news tips. And again, what we do is we report on them and then larger news outlets often pick up our reports. Um, and so it helps amplify what's going on um, in these culture wars on college campuses so that parents, students, watchdogs and legislature legislators are informed you know, and so that, you know, the, the first part of fighting a battle is understanding what you're fighting. Um, so we help sound the alarm on, on a lot of these topics and then underscoring that we train students to be college, uh, to be journalists so that they can go into you know, journalism and, you know, be truth tellers and be mm -hmm. liberty minded in an age uh, where that's certainly a battle. 
What are your thoughts on our industry of journalism, how its priorities have changed over the years? So there's been an evolution in journalism, and I'm not going to deny it. Okay. I'm not going to pretend like, no, no, you know, it's like, it's all good. (laughs) Um, I grew up in an (laughs) age. Nothing to see here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I grew up in an age where, and uh, you know, you would get your news on your front porch on your, I would go in the morning with my coffee and my bathrobe and I'd walk down to the edge of my driveway and I'd pick up my news. I remember a time before, you know, the internet and the 24 hour news cycle and the feed the beast, feed the beast. I mean, every, every day, every hour, you got to have a new headline, a new breaking news story. So technology has changed journalism in, in many ways. And then what we've also seen is the rise of combat journalism for good or for bad, where, you know, um, one side or another is going to you know, have headlines that are, for lack of a better term, clickbaity, or they might use mm-hmm. hyperbole, but they're really trying to, you know, get their audience excited, um, as egg them on and sort of like create, you know, help fight a narrative using journalism as a tool. Uh, the right and the left are guilty of that. Although I would say that, you know, the left, uh, is practicing journalism malfeasance in a lot of ways. So um, we're seeing journalism become a tool, a weapon to advance political agendas. Um, And we're seeing journalists be willing to embrace that role, especially a journalist with an agenda. And I, I know I'm biased, but on the left, again, the mainstream legacy media who thinks it's their job to be the gatekeepers. And they're going to tell you how to think, what to be worried about, you know, what to, what, again, they're, they're, they're helping to spread this idea of, we know what's best for you. Here's what yeah. you should drive. Here's what you should eat. Here's how you should vote. Here's who you should hate. Um, you you just, just trust us here. So, um, and, and just to say, when it comes to the college fixed student journalists, we don't tell them to write opinion. We just tell them to get the who, what, where, when, and why the subjectivity comes in and what we see is news, not how we report. Um, you know, of course, we have opinions and editorials, and it's labeled as such. But in general, yeah. um, I think it's important to train up the next generation of journalists to, to remember the good old who, what, where, when, and why, and still, you know, try to fight the good fight out there when it comes to not only campus reform but but journalism reform. Do you think journalism will ever return to what it once was in being objective like that? Some places, because if there's a if there's a hunger and a need for just straight news, especially like community news, where you know a lot of these small newspapers have died out, unfortunately, like the mm-hmm. small hometown newspapers. But there's still some you know local outlets, you know, covering city hall, covering the local parade, and they have an audience and they can get advertisers. So we we still have that community news. Uh, unfortunately, community newspapers don't do a good job of holding their local politicians accountable, as well as some of the large papers in the metropolitan areas. But we st- we, w- we will always have journalism. We will always have community news. Um, but right now, we're just in this weird transition time. We're in this weird evolution and flux of journalism where I don't really know where it's going to go next. I do know that the battle lines have been drawn and, you know, people are getting their news either from group A or group B. And very mm-hmm. rarely does do those Venn diagrams overlap, right? Um, I try to follow both 
all sides because I want to know what everybody's up to. And I think wise people will follow all sides and make their own informed decisions. But unfortunately, we have so many consumers that are in a vacuum, again, both the left and the right. Um, and I don't see an end to that anytime soon because emotions and tensions are so high right now. You know, uh, we're in a very tense time in this nation's history and they want their narrative validated and vindicated and they can get that with um, the daily news cycle, which is just a beast. It's just a monstrous beast <laughs> where every single, and I mean, we feel we're a small, relatively small, you know, campus you know, niche topic, but it's like headline after headline after headline. Now I will say no shortage of headlines on any given day when it comes to <laughs> campus craziness. I, I assure oh, yeah. you I'm there's stuff I'm leaving on the cutting room floor. I promise <laughs> you. Um, but I really, I make it a rule personally me that we do not use hyperbole in headlines. We do not use exaggeration in headlines. Frankly, we don't need to. We surpassed satire before the Babylon Bee was even an <laughs> yeah. idea in somebody's mind. I mean, these college campuses were, were doing ridiculous things so much so that people were like, is this a joke? And we we're like, no, it's not a joke. And I have a very strict rule that there's no satire allowed on the college fix because the, the headlines write themselves. They literally write themselves. I can't tell you the number of times that I will see an article from you guys and I'd be like, no, and I'll click on it. And <laughs> yes. I'm thinking, and it's backed yes. up. And I just think this world is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> it really is. The inmates are running the asylum at this point. <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we do. We vet these things and we look, we're just like, according to this, here's a hyperlink. We'll take a screenshot of the the school website or we'll have, you know, the flyer, there's the video or we don't have to make this stuff up. It really is very egregious. Um, and there's no end in sight. And I really, it just, it's very, it's a foreboding sense that if we can't get our, if we can't return to true classical liberal education with a Socratic method where debate is allowed. Again, I go back to what we first talked about on the, when we started this, this interview is literal lives are at stake. And I think a perfect example of that is the, is the COVID debate where we were, we were given a one size fits all approach. Nobody was allowed to debate anything. And now slowly, but surely we're seeing more and more ramifications of that policy until I think the dam will burst, but it'll be too little too late by then. What do you think is going to happen with that? Because I see that the people who were called fringe conspiracy theorists, say, even six months ago, sane people are starting to see that they knew what they were talking about. But I don't really feel like most people or the mainstream has acknowledged this. Do you think they will? Will it come to a point where they can't pretend anymore and they're going to have to? You know, uh, Dr. So, I'm going to quote Dr. So on Twitter where I saw a brilliant <laughs> quote of yours, which you said, you can't deny the bodies. Right. I mean, you can't ignore the bodies or something to that effect. Yeah. That, and that's I don't mean to laugh. I mean, this is I, I've seen a lot of discussion about some of the effects that people have have are experiencing due to the one size fit all approach. And again, when you have an anecdote after anecdote, OK, they're starting to trickle in. But when it becomes an avalanche, when it becomes a mountain of anecdotal evidence, I think then it will be impossible to ignore um, but they'll try for a very long time. I heard one person liken it to, well, cigarette smoking was deemed safe for like 40 years by the industry until there was just so much evidence that they couldn't deny it anymore. So I really hope it doesn't take 40 years for at least an honest debate to occur, but, uh, I won't hold my breath. 
Yeah. I hope it's sooner than later so that people can get the help and support that they need. Yeah. And well, the other unfortunate thing is a lot of these discussions we talked about what was going on with the evolution of journalism. So a lot of people in Camp A aren't aware of what Camp B knows. And it's mm. too bad that they don't know what Camp B knows because it's, it, you know, it's a lot of medically backed data and science. Um, and well, let me give you a good example. So in Mar- April of 2020, the College Fix had an article about an epidemiologist who argued for herd immunity. Okay. And it was went off the charts viral. Six million page views in the wow. span of two weeks. Okay. And it was dethrottled by social media. It was slapped with a warning label. It was censored. It was labeled false or misleading or what have you. But all we were doing was quoting an epidemiologist discussing Mm. a concept called herd immunity, which has been around in the medical community for decades, if not centuries. So literally, you know, based on vaccines are based on this concept. But so it just shows to show that we're up against more than just, you know, entrenched camps. We're up against technology. We're up against bias. We're up against um, big tech censorship and, you know, government agencies deciding what's best. Um, I don't mean to sound like a deranged lunatic, but liberty (laughs) and freedom and lives are at stake. You know, we have, we have, we should, this is America. We have the right to have these conversations. Well, you're in Canada, right? We're always about six months behind you guys. So I always say we have that to look forward to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Where can everyone find you and how can they support The College Fix? So uh, we're thecollegefix.com. And we're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, if parents have students that are looking to get into journalism, we, you know, again, we give students a chance to flesh out their budding resume and, and try journalism. Writing well is a skill that can parlay into many fields. And we, you know, just share the articles. Share our articles on social media so we can let parents, taxpayers, students, and lawmakers know what's really going on on these college campuses, at least so they can be informed, whether you agree or disagree, you know, know what's going on. Um, and you know, that way we can have an honest conversation Um, about higher education, which I say is one of the most important battlegrounds for the heart, soul, and mind of, of this nation.